You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, good morning, City Church. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Please keep our college students in prayer as they're traveling back from a beach retreat this afternoon. Also, please keep Pastor Dean and his boys in prayer. They're coming back from a long, extra long drive from Miami today. Um, So I'm excited to be a part of a new series on the book of Ruth. It's going to be three weeks. And uh, something unique about this book is that it's the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Israelite. We don't know exactly who wrote it. Uh, The book is named Ruth after the main character, not the author. We, We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. But what we do know is that it took place during the time of the judges. Uh, If you look just before the book of Ruth is the book of Judges. And the period of the Judges is not exactly a highlight film of Israelite history. In fact, it's a pretty dark chapter. Uh, The book of Judges sums it up best in Judges 21-25. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. So we come into the book of Ruth during this time period with this backdrop of people doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. And so with the book of Ruth, we see a highlight of God's glory. And so we're going to unpack that over the next three weeks. So this morning, we're going to jump into Ruth chapter one, starting with verse one. It says, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was left without her two children and without her husband." Now, we see at the very beginning of the book of Ruth some very dark days. And what we see is Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. He's from a town called Bethlehem. That may sound a little familiar to you. Uh, He's from the tribe of Judah and from the clan of Ephrathah. Now, those things may not mean a whole lot to you and me, but it should. Because to the Jewish people, that meant a lot. There's an ancient prophecy that comes from the book of Micah that talks about a Messiah who is coming. This messianic prophecy says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So not only does this mean a lot for the Jewish people, this means a lot for us to understand this. And so this prophecy also points to a major problem that we are presented with right off the bat in this story. Elimelech and his two sons who come from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, the clan of Ephrathah, which this prophecy is talking about, if Elimelech and his two sons are dead now, how is this prophecy that we just looked at going to be fulfilled? The Ephrathite, which that name means fruitful, is now fruitless. What we look at when we're 
kind of taking a look at these verses one by one is before this big problem I've just kind of presented, we see that the first problem encountered is Elimelech and his family are living in Bethlehem and there's a famine. Bethlehem means the house of bread. So it's ironic that the house of bread has no bread. There's a famine. And so why did this famine come about? Well, it could be the faithlessness of the Israelites during the period of the judges where the, when this takes place. The solution in Elimelech's eyes was, we'll go to Moab. Really? Moab? Well, again, for us, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But that would be the equivalent of someone from Tallahassee going, you know what, let's go to Gainesville. Let's go to Miami, right? The Jews and the Moabites did not get along. Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, is clearly not living up to his name when his solution to the problem of famine is to go into Moabite territory. Now again, this won't make a whole lot of sense unless you know the history behind the Moabites. So I'm going to give you a very, very brief history on that so you understand it better and appreciate this story. Moab's origin, it comes from Genesis 19. I'm going to let you look at that on another time. But Abraham had a nephew named Lot, and Lot had two daughters, and Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughters that produced two sons, one by the name of Ammon and the other son named Moab. This is where this group of people came from. So a dark pass already at the very beginning. Now we also see in the book of Numbers that the Moabites are continually harassing the Israelites. Also the Ammonites did the same thing, that brother uh, of Moab. But the Moabites are harassing the Israelites in Numbers 22 through 24. There's a king named Balak of the Moabites and he sends a pagan prophet by the name of Balaam to go and curse the Israelites. And what that meant for us today, we think that's not a big deal, someone just saying something, no, no problem. But back in that time period, they really believed that this meant something for a prophet to go and, and pronounce curses on their enemy. So Balaam, on his way to pronounce curses on the people of Israel, is stopped by God. And instead of cursing them, he blesses them. But that's not the end of Balaam's harassment of Israel, because in the very next chapter in Numbers 25, we see that Balaam has incited several Moabite women to go and entice the men of Israel to have sexual relations with them. And as a result of that, God's wrath is poured out on the men of Israel. In fact, Numbers 25 says that there were some 24,000 Israelite men that were killed from God's wrath. So if that's not enough for you, then in the book of Judges that I said takes place around the same time as the, as the book of Ruth, in Judges 3, King Eglon of the Moabites continually harasses the Israelites over and over again. I think that Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 through 6 sum it up best. Here's what God has to say about the Moabites. It says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. This is because they did not meet you with food and water on the journey after you came out of Egypt. And because Balaam, son of Baor from Pethor, in Aram Naharim, was hired to curse you. Yet the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but he turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity as long as you live. 
Now we've got to understand just how much the Israelites hated the Moabites and how they were the enemies of the chosen people of God. If we don't grasp that, then the rest of the book of Ruth is not going to have as deep of a meaning for us. So it's essential to understand that. At the beginning of this story, there's a reflection of the faithlessness of the Israelite people during the judges period. The famine that came on Bethlehem could be the result of God's judgment on faithless Israel. And this is why Elimelech felt like the solution was to go to Moab. But when he takes his family to Moab, of all places on the face of the earth, after understanding where the Moabites come from, Elimelech may have died as a result of God's judgment on him. We don't know for sure. Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion, marry Moabite women, which was also regarded possibly as an act of disobedience and faithlessness, resulting in their premature death and sterility. And this is because marriages during that time period were between, primarily between two people of the same tribe of Israel and certainly not with foreigners. And the reason for prohibiting marrying foreigners was not a racial or ethnic issue. It was a God issue. Because what was happening is when the Israelites would marry people outside of the Israelites, they would tend to follow after foreign gods. And so that's why marriages were primarily between two people in Israel and primarily between two people of the same tribe. So we see this played out over and over in the Old Testament. When the Israelites marry outside of that, it usually leads to problems because they follow after other gods. So we find that not only does Naomi's husband, Elimelech, die, but after 10 years in Moab, her two sons die, leaving her only with her Moabite daughters-in-law. And this introduces the problem that I mentioned earlier, the Messianic line, which is to come through the tribe of Judah, is now in danger of extinction. For you Back to the Future fans... This is where Doc Brown would exclaim, Great Scott, Marty! And uh, he would say, If these events are left unaltered, then we're, it's going to prevent King David from ever coming. And ultimately, it's going to prevent the Messiah from ever coming. So, without us getting into a DeLorean and risking uh, messing up the space-time continuum uh, and going back and changing things, how is this prophecy going to ever be fulfilled? As we look in verse, uh, verses 6 through 13, I'm just going to mention a few things here briefly to you, and then we'll jump back into the text itself. But Naomi now hears that there is food back at Bethlehem. Remember, it's just her and Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law. That's the only ones left in her family. And so as they're in Moab looking to see what they're going to do, Naomi hears that there is now food back in Bethlehem. So the house of bread now has bread again. And so she sees this and whether or not this famine had come as a result of the faithlessness of Israel or not, we know that God has, has mercy on his people and food has returned. So it's time for Naomi to go back home. So she begins to make this trip from Moab to Bethlehem, which is between 70 and 100 miles. And this is not exactly zipping down I-10. This is going on foot through some rugged terrain. So it's going to take them about a week to get there. So she tries to dissuade her two daughters-in-law 
from going with her. She tries to tell him, hey, just go back to your own country of Moab, find new husbands, but yet Orpah and Ruth insist on staying with Naomi. Naomi knew what it was like to be a foreigner in a land. I mean, here she is growing up in Bethlehem, an Israelite, and then living many, many years, at least 10 years, probably more, in Moabite territory. So she knows what that's like to be a foreigner. And so she knows that these two daughters-in-law are going to be Moabite women coming to Bethlehem, the area of the Israelites. And so she tries to dissuade them from coming. And so she also gives further reasons. Naomi says, look, I'm too old to be able to have another husband. Scholars say that during this time, that because of knowing when they married, because many uh, young women got married in their early teens. And so looking at that, looking at the fact that she had two sons, and then we had the 10-year period described there, that most scholars believe that Naomi was probably either in her mid-40s or in her 50s at this time period. And she says, look, there's very little chance I'm going to be able to remarry. And even if this were possible, and if I were to be able to marry and have sons, which is a whole nother thing, then Orpah and Ruth, you're going to have to wait a long time to be able to marry them, right? And so these are a couple of issues. Not only this, but also Naomi believes that the hand of God is against her. So why would they continue to be with her, to suffer along with her under what she perceives as the curse of God? So we come back into the the passage here in verse 14. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. So whereas Orpah finally decides to return home to Moab, Ruth decides that she is going to stay with Naomi. She had every reason to go back to Moab to her family, but her allegiance is with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And this allegiance is highlighted in this passage. It's described that she clung to Naomi, her mother-in-law. This is the same word used in Genesis 2.24 when it talks about a man will cling to his wife. And this level of devotion is why this passage, this, this vow of Ruth, is often repeated in wedding vows today because of this deep level of commitment. Rather than be with her own blood relatives, worshiping the gods that she grew up with, Ruth abandons everything to follow Naomi. If you were to look at this, the vows that Ruth makes, the central line of these vows is when she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. This is emphasized here in the passage. Furthermore, not only is she saying, I'm going to... Uh, be with your people, and I'm going to worship your God, she not only decides to live with Naomi's people, but also to die and be buried with them. 
And in this time period, to be buried with a group of people is to associate yourself 100% with them. So she rejects her identity as a Moabitess and aligns herself with the Israelites, the covenant people of God. This is going to be very important when we are introduced to an Israelite named Boaz, who appears to be in breach of this Deuteronomy 23 passage that I mentioned earlier where God says, do not associate with them. Don't let them come into the assembly because Ruth has now abandoned her identity as a Moabitess and is identifying with the Israelites. Ruth is so convincing in her allegiance and devotion to Naomi that Naomi has no choice but to just be quiet. And so here we are with just Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, traveling to Bethlehem. And so here we are on this 70 to 100 mile journey, and they finally reach Bethlehem, verse 19. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You know, the appearance of Naomi was probably a sight to see. She clearly displayed the years of hurt that she experienced in Moab, that she was nearly unrecognizable. Can, can this be Naomi? Naomi's experiences had made her very bitter. Naomi's name means pleasant, and she is now telling people in Bethlehem, don't call me pleasant anymore, call me bitter, because I've lost everything dear to me in Moab. Notice that Naomi describes herself as returning empty, even though Ruth has just vowed everything to be with her. Ruth has given up everything in Moab, her family, her gods, everything, to be with Naomi, her mother-in-law. Yet Naomi describes herself as going away from Bethlehem full and returning completely empty. Imagine what a slap in the face that would be to you if you were Ruth. Furthermore, this passage highlights the fact that Ruth is a Moabitess. It, it takes particular care to describe her as Ruth the Moabitess. And again, this is important because we understand Ruth is an outsider. She is not from Israel. She's not one of them. She's coming from the outside. Can you imagine walking into Bethlehem as the daughter-in-law of Naomi and you are the only one left? Your husband is dead. Your father-in-law is dead. So all you've got is your mother-in-law who is a, an Israelite going into Bethlehem, but you are a Moabitess, the very enemies of God. At the end of Ruth 1, we're left with a few things that we can see. Number one, we see a once pleasant woman, Naomi, now bitter with God because of life's circumstances that have left her as a widow and childless. Maybe you are bitter with God about something this morning and that you don't understand. 
Maybe life's circumstances have stolen your joy. We may never know why Naomi went through what she went through because the passage doesn't explain it. What we do know is that God will use it for his purposes. What we don't know is why we go through certain things in our life. We, we don't get all the answers. Why would you allow this to happen to me? But what we do know is God is going to use it for his purposes. Don't give up on him. We not only see a once pleasant woman now bitter with God, but we also see a devoted daughter-in-law at the end of Ruth 1 who is walking into a small town of Israelites as a Moabitess and a widow. Despite the difficult journey ahead, Ruth was committed to Naomi. In spite of everything surrounding her, she would not give up. Maybe someone you know is going through something that has made them bitter with God. How determined are you to walk through these circumstances with this person? If, what if it costs you so much to walk with them? If there's a rough road ahead, are you going to be committed to walk with this person who is bitter with God? This same Ruth also turned her back on her fellow Moabites and their pagan gods to follow the one true God whose people were the Israelites. Maybe you come from a family that has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. And you're having to think about Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up where there's going to be conversations that will be uncomfortable. Are you willing to stand up for the one true God in the face of blood relatives, in the face of family that you love and say, despite what you think, I know this is true. Are we going to step out in faith to follow the one that's called us by name? Not only do we see this once pleasant woman, now bitter with God, and this devoted daughter-in-law who's walking into a small town as an outsider, we also see, and I think this is the overarching problem of the entire book of Ruth that we're dealt with, the Messianic line from Judah has come to a screeching halt with the death of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and the deaths of Kilion and Malon, Naomi's sons. So when we reach the end of Ruth 1 here, can you imagine watching a movie that ends right here? You're going back to Bethlehem, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, who's an outsider, and her very people are hated by the Israelites. And they're walking into town, and Naomi is saying, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And it's like, roll credits, end of the movie. Can you imagine what that's like? There are movies that end that way, and it is frustrating for many people. It's completely unresolved. I mentioned in the previous service that Pastor Dean is not a sci-fi fan, so I feel that there is a gap that I need to fill here this morning. So I've already mentioned Back to the Future. So for the Star Wars fans in the room, think about the way that the Empire Strikes Back ends. At the end of Empire Strikes Back, you have Luke with his hand cut off. You have the rebels who are in disarray because their base on Hoth has been completely destroyed. And you have Han Solo who's in carbon freeze. And they're just kind of floating around saying, see you at the rendezvous point. And that's like roll credits. It's the end of the movie. And I'm old enough to actually remember having to wait for Return of the Jedi to come out in the theater. 
And not only did I have to wait years for that thing to happen, but then I had to stand in line for two hours to get a ticket. So this unresolved tension is where we are in Ruth 1. There's so much wrong. There's been so much devastation. But here's the thing. God isn't finished. In fact, he's just getting started. As in the story of Esther, where God is constantly at work behind the scenes, orchestrating every event to bring about his will, such is the case here. If you remember back, we looked at the book of Esther earlier this year. In the same way in Ruth, there are several circumstances throughout this book where something just so happens. It will use that phrase. It just so happened that this happened. And you're going to find that if you're here the next couple of weeks. What we know is it's not just so happened. This is a tongue-in-cheek by the author and really meaning God is behind all of it. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how God uses a man named Boaz, who's a close relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, to redeem and restore this family. Through Ruth, the Moabitess, and Boaz, a faithful Israelite, the Messianic line will be restored, demonstrating that God works against all odds and includes all kinds of people, no matter their past or their family heritage. If you were to skip ahead, we've talked about Ruth 1, if you were to skip ahead to Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, the last few verses of this short book, you're going to see a genealogy listed there. And if you were to take that genealogy and then you looked over at Matthew 1 and you compare those two, they are the same. What we find from this is this same genealogy is presented culminating in Jesus. The story of Ruth is many things, but the overarching point in God's grand story is that God used unusual and despairing circumstances to include a Moabitess, who is a hated enemy of God's people, in the lineage of David. Ruth is in the lineage of David. In, when you look at these genealogies, you will see she comes about to make this happen. This David is described not only as being from Bethlehem of Judah, the tribe of Judah, but also from the clan of Ephrathah, of which Naomi, Elimelech, and Boaz were a part. More importantly, this lineage leads to Jesus the Messiah. So as we come to the end of this, and, and I've given you kind of the Empire Strikes Back ending of Ruth 1, I've at least given you some hope because there is a resolution coming. We've seen the end of it. What we find out is it doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done. The story of Ruth is the story of all of us. God is in the business of taking the broken, the outcast, the shameful past, the sinner that seems beyond hope, and rescuing us from our sin and ourselves and our past through sending Jesus to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that we deserved. Nothing is too much for God to overcome, and no one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. We are all outsiders in need of being brought in just as Ruth is in this story. If you're willing to put your past, present, and future into the hands of Jesus, we have people in our care room after the service that would love to walk through this with you. As we draw our time here in this service to a close, we get to reflect further on this Jesus who died the death we deserved as we take the Lord's Supper. 
If you didn't grab a packet with the bread and juice uh, when you came in, there should be some at the back of the auditorium and scattered around. This is a reminder that the Lord's Supper is for those who uh, have put their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And when you th- we look back to the time when Jesus had this Last Supper with his disciples. This is before Jesus was arrested and ultimately went to the cross. He celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples. And this Passover meal reflected what happened in the Exodus story, where God told Moses, you tell the people that my wrath is coming on Egypt, and you will need to take an unspotted lamb, an unspotted sacrificial lamb, and take the blood of that lamb and spread it over the doorposts of your home. When I come through and my wrath is poured out, when I see that blood, I will pass over your house and your house will be spared. Jesus is with his disciples right before his crucifixion. And he says, he's basically pointing to this Exodus story as they have a Passover meal together and say, my blood is the ultimate sacrifice that will satisfy the wrath of God and he will pass over you. And that's exactly what we celebrate when we remember the Lord's Supper. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19, we see, And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Eat the bread as we remember his sacrifice. In the very next verse, in verse 20 of Luke 22, says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Drink the juice as we remember his blood poured out for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your ultimate sacrifice. There is nothing we could do to earn our way into a right relationship with you. We broke it, and we have no way to fix it. We thank you that you took the initiative. You had a plan since before time began to send your son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, we are thankful that you love us the way you do. God, help us to understand that none of us is beyond the reach of the good news of Jesus Christ. No matter what our past is, no matter what our present is, Lord, we know that you have a bright future for us by coming to us and dying for us. May we recognize that and put our faith in you. We thank you for stories like the book of Ruth, where you demonstrate your mercy and your faithfulness in spite of our faithlessness over and over again. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.